Hello and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast and will be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA regulated entities, such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs and brokers, TPR regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover, I welcome our guests to the podcast today. Welcome to Anthony Kettler and Matt Watson as guests on today's podcast. And hopefully everyone is enjoying their newfound freedoms, eating again inside restaurants and meeting people within their own homes. As a taster of what's to come, Anthony, what are you going to be talking about for listeners this month? Hi there. I'll be talking about the first pure legal interest only mortgage case, uh, which was discussed in last month's podcast. And I'll be taking listeners through the Sheffield County Court judgment. Brilliant. And Matt, what can we look forward to from you? Well, there's been lots going on in the directors and officers area, but today I'm going to be focusing on some changes to pre-pack regulations that came in earlier this month and just general changes in some of the wider issues we're seeing from company insolvency issues. Brilliant. So just before we turn to Anthony and Matt, it's also worth briefly covering some other topics as particular highlights for listeners during May 2021. First of all, there's a lot going on in the pensions area during May with FCA proposals requiring pension providers to book appointments for members with PensionWise before members look to make withdrawals or changes to their pension pots. The FCA and the pensions regulator have also joined forces in a call for input on improving the consumer pension journey. And the Department of Work and Pensions have proposed some new simpler statements for defined contribution pension schemes. The FCA has also outlined proposals for a new consumer duty of care with the intention of creating greater protections for consumers in retail financial services. The FCA has also confirmed that it intends to continue its thematic review into defined benefit pension transfer advice until at least spring 2022. So that issue continues And also in the final salary pension area, the FCA confirmed that it intends to write once more to the British Steel Pension Scheme customers, building on its contact that it made in June 2020. And as we record this podcast on Wednesday, the 26th of May 2021, the FOS has also produced today its annual data showing increases in complaints against SIP providers in particular. So now turning to the core part of our podcast today. And so, Anthony, the judgment in Colburn and Albany Park from Sheffield County Court is something we raised as a coming soon in last month's podcast. It's a key decision. Can you just explain to our listeners why it's such a key decision? Um, Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Yes. So this was the first interest only mortgage case to go to trial. Pure Legal Limited is the company that's were the legal representatives of the claimants in this case. It's the first of these types of claim to go to trial and therefore the first time some of the key issues in this type of claim have been tested by a judge. So you mentioned there that it's the first time that the pure legal type interest earning mortgage claim has been tested 
fully before a court. So broadly, what were the the key issues being tested? Broadly, there were three main issues dealt with in the judgment. Firstly, and I suppose the key issue was limitation, i.e. when did time start running for the additional three-year latent damage period under the Limitation Act? The claimant's case on limitation was that given their allegation that the broker should have recommended a capital repayment mortgage or an interest-only mortgage with a suitable repayment strategy, that time didn't start running until the claimants were told that they might have been eligible for a repayment mortgage. The second issue is whether there had been a breach of duty. So that's to say, if a repayment mortgage is available, is an interest-only mortgage automatically unsuitable? And then finally, the third issue was loss. So the claimants claimed the difference in interest payable uh, with there being high interest payments over the term on the interest-only mortgage compared to the capital repayment mortgage, but also the capital element of the mortgage that would have been paid as well. So before we get to the decision, can you give listeners a bit of a flavour for the key facts? Yes, of course. Um, Well, the claimants in this case were first-time buyers and they were living in rented accommodation at the time and they were looking to purchase their first property. And this was in 2006 when they approached a broker to seek advice. They'd discussed several priorities that they wanted with their mortgage, and that included uh, wanting to keep their repayments low, and they expressly recorded that they wanted an interest-only mortgage for the first few years, and also to consolidate their existing unsecured debts into the mortgage. And the claimants also indicated that their capital repayment strategy was to have an interest-only mortgage for the first three years, and then to convert that to a repayment mortgage once their debts had cleared, and they'd settled down and got used to the repayments. But fortunately, In this case, there was a good file of papers available that served as a record of the mortgage advice given in 2006. And this included a signed application form, a suitability report, the standard regulatory key facts illustration and a fact find. So after the advice, the claimants entered into the mortgage. However, after several years, they got into arrears, ultimately resulting in possession proceedings being brought against them. Um, The claimants ended up selling the property in 2018, but had redeemed the mortgage in full and then moved back into rented property again. So you mentioned that there are a couple of key issues that are dealt with in the decision, one of them being limitation. So how did the court approach the issue of limitation and what did it decide? Well, under the Limitation Act, there is a primary limitation period of six years within which the claimants could bring the claim. And there was no dispute at trial that that had expired since the advice was in 2006. However, the claimants sought to rely on Section 14A of the Limitation Act, which allows them a three-year period from which the clock starts ticking from the date when the claimants have knowledge, principally of the material facts about the damage, and also broadly where they could identify whom to bring the claim against. The judge looked to identify what the crux of the claim was all about to decide what the damage was that the claimants had suffered. The judge characterised the allegation as one where the claimants alleged that the mortgage was unsuitable because there was no repayment vehicle or viable repayment strategy in place alongside it. And having identified that crux of the claim, the judge then turned to consider what the relevant damage was and the material facts relevant to that damage. And the damage ultimately was the fact that the claimants had entered into an allegedly unsuitable mortgage, and it was allegedly unsuitable because there was no repayment vehicle or repayment strategy that was viable alongside it. The relevant material facts in the case were, firstly, that the mortgage was was an interest-only mortgage. Secondly, that there was no repayment vehicle or strategy alongside it. And thirdly, that the capital sum would not reduce. And unless something changed, the claimants would still be liable to pay the capital in full at the end of the term. Now, 
in considering all of that, crucially, the judge found that the claimants knew at the outset of each of those three material facts. And the contemporaneous documents made that clear, in particular, since the claimants had signed those documents, indicating that they'd read and understood them. So therefore, the claimants knew enough right at the outset, uh, in the judge's opinion, to question the advice that they'd been given, and at least begin to investigate whether they had been misadvised by their broker. So the judge concluded that Section 14A, in fact, didn't apply at all in this case, since the relevant facts were patent from the outset when the claimants entered into the mortgage. That is one of my favourite quotes from the judgment, is that the damage was patent, not latent. Yes. So the judge found that Section 14A was, in fact, not relevant. But what else did the judgment say in relation to the other key issues that you raised at the outset on breach and loss? Well, the judge also made an important finding that the advice was suitable and therefore there had been no negligence. And he didn't need to go that far, but he did in fact make that finding, which was an important finding from the judge. And he also found that loss should be capped at the difference in the interest, and therefore the capital element of the mortgage should not form part of the loss. So that reduced the value of the claim down to around about £5,000, as opposed to the over £40,000 that were initially being claimed. And aside from those, it was was also worth mentioning that the judge remarked that Claims companies and and solicitors should take a realistic view of the value of the claim at the outset in order to avoid costs becoming disproportionate to the value of the claim. And I think that was particularly relevant in light of the reduction of capital down to a a small claims track amount. Yeah, the judge didn't seem to hold back any punches at the end of that judgment. Last month on this podcast, we talked about the legal proceedings being brought by Pure Legal in relation to the sale or alleged missale of interest-earning mortgages. Where do you think that this judgment leaves those claims? I think for the wider mortgage broker market and, and the professional indemnity insurance markets generally, this is a very, very helpful decision, particularly um, due to the limitation findings, because that's a broadly similar allegation that's being made across the claims. So I think it's, it's also worth mentioning that the judge adopted the analysis of the High Court decision in the Ross and Atanta case, and the judge did find that that reasoning persuasive in concluding that damage was, was patent and not latent, and therefore that Section 48 of the Limitation Act didn't apply. And there's also some helpful commentary around loss and breach in the judgment. But I suppose in, in summary, it's, it's a really important decision and one that we would hope gives pure legal in their ATE provider and, and, and or third party funders in the background some, some food for thought on, on their existing proceedings and anything else they have waiting in the wings. Thank you, Anthony, for taking us through that. And particularly as you are our resident pure legal interest earning mortgage guru. That's been very helpful. I'm going to turn now to, to Matt, who's one of our residents, director and officer specialists in relation to claims against directors and officers, or DNO for short. And he's best placed to talk us through what's going on in the DNO area. So one of the issues you picked out at the start of this podcast was in relation to the changes around the rules for pre-pack sales. So first of all, for listeners less familiar, what is a pre-pack? Yeah, so a pre-pack is an arrangement of the sale or, or part of the sale of a business, business assets of a company before the administrator as the insolvency practitioner is appointed. And thereafter, the sale completes shortly after the administrator has been appointed. So it can be perceived as a very quick decision process in terms of potentially setting up a new company that's doing all but the same things 
perhaps with a with, with a slightly different name. So so that that's the that's the prepack. And prepacks have obviously been around for a while, and there's previously been some attempts arguably failed attempts to sort out some of the reputational issues that you alluded to there around prepacks, including for those familiar with the area, the so-called prepack pool, which is a bit of a tongue twister on a podcast. But what are the new changes that are being introduced? Yeah, so so another tongue twister is that the legislation that's come into force on the 30th of April of this year is called the Administration Restrictions on Disposal to Connected Persons Regulations 2021. I said it'd be a tongue twister. And, and really what, what this legislation does is from the beginning of May, where a company is to be put into a pre-pack sale, the administrator now must take one of two steps before making the sale of a substantial disposal to a connected person within the first eight weeks of administration. And those two steps can be either obtaining the approval of the proposed transactions from the company's creditors, or a new proposal is where the insolvency practitioner, the administrator, has received and considered a report from the connected person who has obtained some valuation from a third party called the evaluator, who gives a view on the reasonableness of the proposed sale of, of the asset of the business. So connected person can include directors of the company. So as I said before, you could have a situation where directors of the company going into the prepack are then looking to set up a new company and perhaps sell part of the assets to that new company. In this situation, the director would be going out to find a valuer to say, well, isn't this the, the correct amount of money to be paid for this particular asset? And then the administrator would have to look at that report, look at that valuation and make a decision as to whether, in fact, that is a reasonable position to. And so it looks like there's quite a few risks potentially being raised as a result of these changes. First of all, you've got the risk to claims and complaints against administrators to, for example, doing something that perhaps isn't supported by the evaluator. You have the new issue and risk for those acting as evaluators. And I think I read somewhere that that could be solicitors, valuers, other insolvency practitioners, because there's no prescribed set of qualifications. But where do you see the big risk for directors and officers in relation to these new set of rules? Yeah, for for directors and officers, I think these new regulations just bring into focus the, the often difficult question as to what a director is doing to promote success of the company, um, that being one of the key director's duties in the Companies Act. But also you can see that the new regulations may bring to light some concerns perhaps by shareholders or disgruntled creditors as to whether the directors are really acting in the best interest of the company. And you can see there may be concerns if there's some proposal for the director to sell on some of the assets to a new company, which is effectively doing the the same operation, but with a different name, whether that director is really obtaining a reasonable price for the sale of a particular asset, particularly if that director is then going to be the recipient of the sold asset. So I think the answer to that is it's going to bring into focus 
the the scope of directors' duties within the Companies Act when you have a situation such as this. I think it's also interesting, perhaps from an insurance angle, from a coverage position, in terms of for DNO cover. Often, one of the questions you, you may be looking at is really the the scope in which the director is carrying out their duty. And you can see again, if in this situation, the director is potentially perceived as wearing two hats, that being the, the seller of the asset and the buyer of the asset, whether again, that could raise coverage positions as to really was that particular director acting as an insured person in their capacity as a director of the particular insured company. So I think it, it'll be an interesting area to keep an eye on. It's obviously very early days, given it's only just come into force within the last month. Definitely want to, to watch this space. And no doubt we'll probably have you on in a few months' time talking about the impact of these changes to the extent that we see some action in this area. The second point you mentioned is in relation to the wider pressure on directors of companies, given all of the financial issues arising as a result of COVID-19. So can you just talk us through what's going on in relation to the insolvency pressures on companies and how that is impacting directors and DNO insurers? Yeah, so we, we had a strange situation at the end of last year, 2020, when the insolvency service statistics were actually showing a downturn in the number of company insolvencies. But the impact and the reason for that really seems to be off the back of the government's ability to provide loans and and some protection for companies not going into insolvency. So at the moment, there's been a number of commentators saying that we're we're perhaps in a sort of, it sounds a bit cynical, but almost a, a quiet before the storm in terms of we've had a reduction in the number of company insolvencies, even though we've been going through a pandemic. When perhaps the the loans, the business offerings from the government have been pulled back and some of the regulations that have effectively put a, a stop on types of claims being brought against directors, for, for example, wrongful trading actions, whether once those have, have come to an end, are we going to see actually an increase, a sort of delayed spike in insolvency-related in claims? There's been some other recent legislation within the last year that again feeds into this position as to what steps directors should take when a company is facing insolvency. So in in July last year, we saw legislation introduced which has given HMRC the ability in, in some circumstances to pursue directors personally on a joint and several basis for debts due whether directors have been involved in what's known as Phoenix-type arrangements over a five-year period. So this new legislation has, has given HMRC greater scrutiny to look at directors taking actions where perhaps they are setting up Phoenix trading companies to try and avoid some liabilities that are owed. It's quite a technical step that would be taken for HMRC to consider But the key points to take from it is in order for actions to be taken against a director for these actions for Phoenix trading, the individual director must have been connected with at least two insolvent companies in the last five years, which result in a tax liability. They have to be involved in carrying on a business that is the same 
as at least the two previous companies, there must be some connection to the company and the tax liability would, would need to amount to over £10,000. And in this situation, there is potential for HMRC to, to pursue recovery actions against directors if they are to be seen to be creating new companies, which are effectively the old company all but by name, these Phoenix arrangements. So it's certainly an area where HMRC are, are keeping a close eye on it and perhaps may become even more relevant given, as I said, a lot of companies, particularly SMEs, have faced a particularly difficult 12 months and really whether once some of the offerings for government support have been pulled back, are we going to see a, a difficult time for some of these smaller to medium-sized companies resulting in them perhaps taking actions that, that could raise regulatory intervention? Thanks, Matt. So there's an awful lot going on in the directors and officers area and a lot of risks for directors to think about going forward. And as someone who's currently advising on the impact of the Pension Schemes Act 2021, it's probably worth mentioning at this juncture that that act also has a lot of impact in relation to directors' obligations when it comes to thinking about the funding of their final salary scheme when they are looking at corporate transactions, restructures, debt financing, and has potential overlap, not only in relation to pension trustee liability, but for directors and officers as well and something we will no doubt be coming to and covering in later podcasts. So thank you to everyone for listening, and a special thank you to Anthony and Matt for their input today. We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector, and please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.